Okay. Why not? Let's do another one. Welcome back. Once again, it is I, Jack Drastic. It is he, Mama's fancy boy, Danny Franks. And this is Men Seeking Tomahawks. Why, Daniel, how are we this evening, sir? Good to be with you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm excited. Uh, we're we're talking about some some fun, interesting things. I feel like uh, today taking a little blast from the past. So uh, yeah, all in all, ready to rock tonight. This would be this this episode. This evening's episode is going to be right in our wheelhouse of our yesteryear. We have a thing or two to say about this. Um, Dan told me to watch a documentary, and I did it. And I was flabbergasted and not in a positive way. And so, oh man, we have a lot, a lot to say here. So Dan, what was the documentary that you requested that I watch? So this documentary, it is uh, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. And it's actually a Bill Simmons joint. But it covered the, what I guess we can call the infamous music festival of Woodstock 99, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the 25th anniversary of the original Woodstock? Is that what it was celebrating? I think 1964 was the was the original. Yeah, it's, it's the second sequel. So I definitely know they had one in 94. Then they had this one. But, okay, so um, it looks like the this looks like uh, the 30th anniversary is what it was. 1969, summer of 69 was the first Woodstock. Right. Like you said, 1994, I guess that was the 25th anniversary, which we're not talking about that one, uh, but the, this documentary does hit on that a little bit. Um, what we're talking about is Woodstock 99, and this is not necessarily going to be exactly like a documentary review, but kind of using that documentary that came out and... If we mention, if we didn't mention it, it's on HBO, it came out within the last few weeks. Um, kind of using that as a jump off point to talk about the festival itself, which always kind of had a weird place in my heart. So I was interested in it from the from the jump, and then kind of all the fallout and maybe what how it impacted, uh, you know, pop culture and at least music festivals in the future. Yeah, there's a lot here. There's a lot here, and there's a lot to say. Uh, I knew the thing was problematic. I didn't really know why or to what extent but we're going to talk about this this was a very interesting documentary and uh, we are going to give you our 10 cents on it i made uh, some musical selections this evening that i felt were appropriate and uh, we're going to start out before we jump into the documentary we're going to start out with our friend tony ferraro and uh He's a, he's a this was his uh, wheelhouse too so i would say that if the three of us had a time machine or if the three of us in our teenage years had a couple extra hundred bucks than what we actually did at the time, we might have we might have been these people at this documentary. So I figured, you know, let's let's uh, let's lump Tony in with all of this. So guys, coming up next, we're going to discuss Woodstock '99, the documentary. And uh, before that, here's a listen at Tony Ferraro with "Crocodile in the Sky," right here on Men Seeking Tomahawks. Left a lazy, right hand crazy, takes a real boy to call a big man baby, is to heaven, both feet waving, crack a real smile when 
listener man and woman in the greater dallas fort worth area this is not a drill this is not a test this is for serious on saturday august 21st that's this coming saturday if you're listening when we release this show come hang out with us your old friends jack and dan in sunny sunny cleburne texas as we cheer on the cleburne railroaders that's right they're taking on the sioux city explorers the hated dreaded and feared We'll be hanging out on the concourse before the game with giveaways and fun. Tickets start at $10. For more information, go to ilovetexasbaseball.com and tell them Men Seeking Tomahawk sent you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Tony Ferraro, before that, with a uh, cut off of his album Elvis's, that was Crocodile in the Sky. For more from Tony or any of the artists featured on the program, go to menseekingtomahawks.com. Yeah, so this documentary that you and I both watched recently about Woodstock 99 that we mentioned going into the musical break, uh, it is, like we said, the 30th anniversary of the original Woodstock, which took place the summer of 69 in Woodstock, New York. Uh, that's a upstate New York location. 
And this 30th anniversary celebration took place in July of 1999, about 100 miles from that original Woodstock location in a what was a small town called Rome, New York. Uh, looking back at the, the census numbers, looks like it was about 35,000 people uh, that were living in Rome at the time. And uh, <laughs> for this event, about 400,000 additional people decided to make the trek from, I guess, all over the world. Uh, for Woodstock 99 for these four days. So that's a, a large multiple on top of the number of people that that town normally handles. Sure. And that's and that's mimics what happened back in the 60s was uh, probably not nowhere near the same amount, but a ton of people uh, poured in for the original Woodstock. Now, what's notable here, not only the location of the Woodstock 99 uh, being different different town but it was also held in a military base and so you know for those who i don't i don't feel like a lot of kids especially the ones listening to this are going to remember you know the the woodstock 99 let alone the first woodstock but the first woodstock had much to do with peace and love it was a hippie driven uh event Whereas 99 was a very different time and place and the location, the venue was an abandoned Air Force base, uh, the irony of which did not fall flat on anybody because the whole concept of this being a celebration of peace and love was kind of hard to buy when the, the premises they threw it on was an Air Force base. Yeah, and it's it's funny because in the documentary laying the foundation for the festival, they talked about the 1994 version uh, was very much about the peace and love, and it was a much more, I guess, accurate depiction of what happened at the original Woodstock, almost to the point that people that attended that festival said it's, it felt a little forced, like, oh, they were trying to force the hippiness on us too much, trying to make it too peaceful and too lovey. Um, so then five years later, it, it's like they kind of went opposite of that. Yeah, but but also, I mean, ninety four that time frame ha- was a little kinder and gentler in terms of like the the popular music at the time, and ninety nine was a completely different beast. Well, you know, and and that's what got me really interested in this and doing this this segment or this show on this topic, but also the documentary itself was that music like nineteen ninety nine. I was. 13, 14, somewhere in there. You were a few years older than that. But for both of us, it was like, you know, the heart of our adolescent music exposure was was this music that was playing. And I remember this summer specifically because, you know, I hadn't started driving yet, so I didn't have a car. So, and, you know, parents worked. So I spent my time every day during the summer sitting at home, watching TV, uh, probably playing video games, but like TRL on MTV was something I always tuned in for. And MTV had kind of wall-to-wall coverage of this Thursday through Sunday. So I remember specifically, it was almost appointment viewing for me, was I was going to sit around and watch watch Woodstock 99 and MTV, all these bands that I was a really big fan of. Um, and it was exciting to me. And, you know, we'll get into the craziness that happened with this festival later, but me coming out of it, I was like, okay, that was a pretty kick-ass weekend. You know, I saw all the bands and I, I heard about some, some craziness, but it was really cool for me. So, um, you know, and so this documentary was a little bit revisiting that and it had a very nostalgic kind of, uh, <laughs> quality for me going into it at least. Yeah. Just, just on paper, the lineup of this event of this show 
had every major musician on the planet, essentially. Anyone that you would see on TV 24-7, like you said, or on the radio, they were essentially all there. It was, it's an incredible card from top to bottom. It's an, it's insane. So, yeah. Yeah. and, and you talked about, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about the facilities that you mentioned where this was held because that plays quite a bit into everything else that happens later on. Uh, you said it was a retired Air Force base. Um, the reason why the organizers felt like this was a good fit was because one of the things that happened in 1994, same organizers, was that they didn't have, I guess, enough walls or fences. Basically, it was a porous setup. So, anyone and everyone was kind of able to sneak in and probably, I don't remember if they quoted an exact number, but maybe like double the number of people who paid were actually there. So they were looking for a facility that they could keep people out from coming in. Um, And this one, you know, we'll get into like big corporate sponsorships and and kind of commercialization of this, I think. But these tickets were $150 a person, which, you know, adjusted for inflation, that's probably close to $300 now, uh, you know, some years later. So their whole thing was we're going to make everybody pay and we're going to do whatever it takes to keep people out that haven't paid. And this military base is perfect for that because it's already kind of fortified on all the on all sides. Uh, You know, the flip side is because it's an old Air Force base. It's like a bunch of giant slabs of concrete with a few grass patches here and there which will, you know, play into some of the madness. So so this was perfect for what they drew up on paper as organizers and probably the opposite of perfect for the actual festival. Uh, we also talked about the bands and the music, and, and I counted them up. There was over 100 bands that played throughout uh, the days. There's really kind of three stages. So they had an east and a west stage were kind of, you know, the two big stages, and they would alternate. And then they had what they called an emerging artist stage that was actually under one of the old airport hangars or one of the old airplane hangars. And that was a lot of DJs and bands you maybe hadn't heard of yet. And I think the documentary also mentioned this a few times. They also had like all night raves that happened on this stage. So, you know, you'd have the big stages that would play, you know, have the big acts throughout the day and then call it midnight, 2 a.m. Then they'd have these raves that kind of took you through the next morning until the band started playing uh, on the, on the other stages. So it was kind of an, all day, all night thing for those four days. And to me, I was revisiting this list of bands that played at this thing. And, you know, MTV was showing when I was watching all the bands I wanted to see. So we'll get into some more of them, but it's your Limp Biscuits, your Corn, your Kid Rocks, the the kind of, you know, bands du jour at the time that MTV was playing. But there was DMX there, George Clinton, Willie Nelson, Jewel, uh, even the Brian Setzer Orchestra is a really kind of diverse uh, lineup, which maybe now kind of thinking back at what Coachella has turned into, that's a little more normal now as you get a little bit of everything. You might have Paul McCartney and Jay-Z playing back to back. But back then, that was not really a thing. You would have these festivals that would be metal festivals or hip hop festivals, but you wouldn't just kind of cram them all in there. And I thought it was interesting on the documentary, some of those bands interviewed, they thought it was kind of weird too that they were all there together. Yeah, well, I don't want to get too ahead of you, but I think that there was definitely a dominant thread. I think that you did have James Brown and Willie Nelson and even John Entwistle on the emerging artists stage, which is really weird. But like mainly, Dan, 
we were talking about that genre of music that was really popular in 99, the, uh, the, the new metal, you know, that, that was what most of the people that were there came to see. They came to see the Limp Biscuits and the Kid Rocks and all that mess. And so I, I, you know, not a lot of female artists. That's one thing they pointed out was there was just a handful and there just seemed to be one strategically placed each day. So I agree there was some variety, but mostly it was kids that looked a lot like you and me, what they were listening to throughout the day on MTV. Yeah, and they even got in a little bit too. You know, they did have a DMX up there and, um, you know, he would be leading these, uh, what do they call it, where, where you, the, the person on stage says something and then the, the crowd yells yeah, something like back at them. Piece. It's kind of like yeah, what, a call and response kind of thing. What Freddie Mercury did at Live Aid. Very, yeah, ex- <laughs> very, very, very similar to that. It was, except in this case, it was DMX scream. You know, the the response was involved the N word. Yeah, and um, you've got the sea of a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, like you said, people that look like us. You know, teenage white guys and a handful of girls that would like be yelling it back. And uh, it was, you know, th- this documentary again. You got to watch it because it has videos of all of this, a lot of unseen videos, and. Now <laughs> you watch happened. that and it's like the yeah. most uncomfortable thing. And you'd it's, say, okay, that didn't happen now. It wasn't that long ago though, Jack. I, well, dude, you say that, but man, there is a lot of things that are only a few years old that if you go and look back at them again, you're like, huh, that, that really did happen. But this was definitely one of them. And you know, we just recently lost DMX, which is insane, but I would love to hear more from the artist as to his thoughts on that, because here he is, it's kind of cool. It's just like I said, it seemed a lot to me like what happened at Live Aid with Freddie Mercury is that man commanded those thousands of people. Like he had them in the palm of his hand and he was giving them a pass to say the N word. And it was nothing but white, white dudes, just 20 year old college dudes screaming the N word for an entire four minute song. It was, it would not happen these days. And it, it was, it was, uh, but I just wonder what he thought of that. Cause it was his, I, I mean, it was him like, give it to me. Like here, here's your, here's your pass, you know? Yeah. And, and there is, you know, we'll, we'll stay on that topic of kind of the, the audience interaction uh, with, with the artist. Um, one of the other things that was kind of like a notable uh, thing than the highlight videos and stuff was kid rock where he was doing a set. And I think he started encouraging people to, throw their water bottles on stage mm. while he did this thing. And then uh, now you've got uh, whatever, again, 100,000, 200,000 people starting to throw things on the stage. And, you know, once the water bottles are out, then other things start getting thrown. The other thing that I was thinking with this is like, okay, maybe the first 10 rows, and it was obviously like a big mosh pit. It was not real rows. But, you know, there's, there's a certain threshold where once you're past, once you're further away from the stage than that, the things you're throwing are not going to, get to the stage, which is what the artist wanted. But, you know, so 95% of the audience is just throwing things and it's just pelting everyone else in the audience. It it was kind of madness watching that and and it's scary and it's, you know, we'll talk about probably some of the the injuries and things that happened here, but it's kind of wild watching these videos that more bad things didn't happen. Well, that's the thing is that that by itself, in and of itself, sounds bad. See, like there's one clip of the dude from The Offspring just taking a, a... 
getting a bottle chucked straight in his head while he's singing. And that happened the whole time with these guys. It That by itself is kind of rough, but it, it's completely eclipsed but what, by what ends up happening at this event. And like I said, I was just blown away by how absolutely crazy this thing got. Yeah, and we'll just keep on this path of talking about like what happened and what was kind of like obvious of happening at the event before we talk about like kind of everything else. Yeah. Um, so also what happened on stage, and this is kind of the most memorable thing for me. And, and I think a lot of people was on Sunday night, which was the last night um, when one of the last acts was playing the red hot chili peppers. Uh, there was towers set up in front of each stage, which is where the cameras were that were, was filming this. And I kind of tried to look at some pictures from the stage out at the towers to see what these actually looked like. And it, it looked like they were maybe like three stories tall, two to three stories tall. And um, the, the main second level is what it looked like. There was like four or five broadcast cameras. So that's what these towers were for, were um, housing these cameras to film uh, this and broadcast on MTV. Cameras and PAs. And PAs, correct. Yeah. Um, and then the PAs were obviously spread throughout as well. One interesting side note about this with these cameras was this was also... Um, available this whole festival was available on internet pay-per-view which you know now seems rather normal but 1999 it was fairly a fairly new thing and it was actually a company out of uh texas i i looked into it maybe even the dallas area that were in charge of streaming this to uh, it was on woodstock.com people could go buy that uh for i think it was 60 dollars for the weekend right. and there were some day passes as well but you know mtv would show kind of you know one stage and then they'd have commentary and I think Carson Daly was probably in some of these towers doing doing play-by-play and maybe interviewing some of the people uh some of the artists as they stepped off stage but all three stages were actually being live streamed on woodstock.com which was pretty revolutionary at the time and and it was kind of cool to to see that was a thing and that was something that had been layered into this festival that I I did not remember kind of cool but also part of the problem you know sure I mean we you know, the, the, I I thought that this documentary was going to be one thing. It turned out to be something completely different. So one of the major complaints about Woodstock in the 90s was the commercialization. I, I remember that vividly. I, I, I'd kind of forgotten that there was a 94 and a 99. But going back and watching this, I was like, okay, I remember this. That, there, you know, Pepsi and all these brand logos were plastered all over everything. And I thought that that was the thing that this documentary was going to cover off on because the original thing was all about the music. Not, I mean, brands like were just not like merchandising and, and marketing and all that was just in its infancy at that point. So there, there, there really wasn't ever that component in the original Woodstock. And so what really turned off a lot of people at these, uh, you know, tributes was how how they made they figured out how to make money on all these angles and so yeah it was kind of cool to to be able to stay home and you know avoid what ended up happening at this thing and watch it all you know online or on pay-per-view or whatever it was but it was also kind of lame you know because this is definitely not what the grateful dead and hendrix and the who and all that stuff was about back in the day it wasn't you know you you didn't have jimmy hendrix saying hey text 
this to 4429 to, to <laughs> well, I don't get... think they were doing that at the time. I don't think we had text. Uh, t- well, they didn't. Text you know, but, but you, like you know that. what I'm saying? Well, yeah, yeah they didn't have... Te- Jimi Hendrix didn't have cellular technology <laughs> is what you're telling me, which is... No, I'm saying in 99, they didn't that, have those uh, text to get updates. They didn't. No, yeah, nobody really had cell phones. It was all pay phones, which is another thing that yeah, works, we'll get factors into this. But but yeah, the, the commercialization and, and all that stuff definitely drove uh, a lot of the issues here. Yeah, so let me put a bow on this. I We wandered off a little bit, but sure. when the Red Hot Chili Peppers were playing, one of the last performances on Sunday, kind of wrapping up things, um, in those towers right there in the middle of the action, the middle of the crowds, um, at some point, someone thought it would be a good idea to start setting fire to those towers. Um, long story short, there was candles passed around for um, like a charitable type thing. Uh, it was... It was a good sign, or I mean, it was a good idea in in concept, I guess, to everyone kind of celebrate celebrate this thing. But what turned out happening is everyone lit those candles up, and then instead of blowing them out like a good citizen would, they decided to use it to set fire to things. And what it culminated into is one of those central towers uh, being set on fire and kind of going up in a crazy, out-of-control flame yeah. in the middle of tens if not hundreds of thousands of people yeah and then from there it splintered off into like almost bonfires all around this thing yeah it turned into a war zone but i think that you're glazing over the mount rushmore of irony here because those candles were handed out by a nonprofit that was trying to gather support to end gun violence because not uh, roughly three months before Woodstock 99 was when Columbine happened, which was the very first major mass shooting at a school in this country. And so this nonprofit, I think it was called PAX, they were gathering support to try to do something about gun violence. And what they did was they gave out these candles to help to hold a candlelight vigil. And yeah, like you said, of all the possible, I mean, it probably was a really bad idea, but who would have known that this thing would have turned into a riotous war zone. But just the concept that that was what those candles were meant to be, a uh, meaning, you know, they're, they're, they're the meaning behind the candles, they ended up turning this little play, this, this whole thing into a war zone. Which Yeah, and they were, uh, it was Under the Bridge was the song that everyone was supposed to hold the, the candles up for. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that, okay, cool, Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of playing along with this, right? Like it was all part of the plan. Unfortunately, when everyone started setting things on fire, the band called a little audible there, and they decided to play, um, in memory of Jimi Hendrix from the original Woodstock, his song, Fire, um, to, you know, lack of a better term, fuel the fire and right. uh, get people even more worked up and, and make things even worse. Well, two things there. So there were a lot of callbacks that a lot of the musicians did to the original Woodstock that didn't mean a damn thing to anybody because all these kids were not even fetuses whenever the first Woodstock rolled through. They had no idea who Hendrix was or, or any of these other people. But the other bit that I think is worth mentioning, we'll get into this more, more uh, in the next segment, is all the scapegoating that I think happened uh, towards the musicians. Uh, I, I did not realize that these promoters were these huge douchebags. And uh, I want to talk about that a lot because this reminded me of another documentary, Dan, that they, uh, who killed the 
USFL, that documentary, mm-hmm. was it the USFL? And like basically by the end of it, they all said, well, it was Trump. Yep. And so everybody's like, oh, I, you know, that's a realization. I didn't really realize that he was the reason that, you know, the this football league folded. I didn't realize that the guys that have been promoting Woodstock since the beginning, I, man, I, they made me angry. <laughs> yeah. I am not fans of those dudes. So is this a good point to jump off into our next musical interlude? I think so, because what we just covered was kind of everything that myself as a viewer and probably most people that haven't dug any deeper, that's everything that we knew. We knew there was a bunch of bands, tons, uh, tons of bands, over a hundred, a lot of them that were a lot of, yeah, Megadeth, Metallica, uh, you know, you name it. It, They, they kind of sounds like more or less had their pick of all the, the popular bands, especially in that metal and new metal category. So what we covered there was what people saw and people knew, oh, okay, there was some controversy because of the fire, but it was the last day and, and kind of cool. Like, you know, it ended a little crazy, but that was Woodstock 99. But what we're going to get into next is everything that actually happened that you knew about if you were there, um, yeah. or, but you didn't know about if you were just kind of a casual observer. And that's kind of where it gets uh, really fascinating. I I've think. got so much to say. I feel like when watching this documentary, Dan, I felt like you could make a really entertaining RPG like and the world was based off of just Woodstock 99 because there was so many crazy characters and classes of people. It's 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 like a it's almost like Game of Thrones. You know, all the things that that collided in this event. It's crazy. So coming up next, prepare for that because I, I honestly I have no idea how this is going to go like this. is I've got there's just so much here. Um, but before that, we're gonna uh, we're gonna stay with our New York theme since this event happened in New York. We're going to uh, have a listen to a good friend of the show, someone we've we've had on the show uh, ever since the beginning. Uh, this is late guest at the party. Uh, they're a dance disco pop band from New York City, and this is their new song. This is fine right here on Men Seeking Tomahawks. It's on fire.
guest at the party with the track this is fine that's a little bit of era appropriate 90s dance disco pop from new york city uh good friends of the show it's crazy that uh, i'm really happy they're still around you know a lot of the bands that we played on the original series of men seeking tomahawks from five years ago uh those bands are no more but you still got some late guests at the party and i'm okay with that I would have put them on the emerging artist stage for sure at Woodstock 94. Oh, you bet. All right, Dan. So back into this with you. Yeah. So where we left off was kind of what people saw on the screen. Uh, what people didn't see on the screen, and we mentioned in a little bit these facilities, this uh, Rome, New York, the small town that how you know welcomed 400,000 people uh, on, to this military base. And, you know, when you, when you think about like, okay, this many people converging for this four days you know basic necessities you start asking yourself like okay this town of 30,000 people they probably don't have hotels if they do it's not enough for this many people um airbnb wasn't a thing you know we, we had that for a while we're like south by southwest or austin city limits austin wasn't huge but it was in the airbnb era when it really took off so local people would just leave town rent out their houses rent out their apartments um, so there was facilities for people to, you know, sleep in, bathe in, all that. Here, it's basically like these 400,000 people are coming and they're just like, hey, here's here's your option. It's, you know, are you going to pick asphalt or are you going to pick the grass? Yeah. And pitch, pitch a tent. Pitch a tent. And that's what a lot of people did. Some people slept in their cars. But a lot of these people set up these tents in the grass and then the grass became full. So people were setting up tents on asphalt. And if you think about asphalt and concrete, uh, I didn't mention it was over 100 degrees <laughs> during this event. And, you know, this this concrete jungle basically is what this was with very few, you know, you don't have shade trees in the middle of this, uh, this Air Force base. So you've basically got this giant frying pan that you have 400,000 people uh, hanging out in for four days. And, you know, they had... You know, maybe several dozen porta potties. I, I don't know exactly how many, but it wasn't nearly enough. Not enough. Yeah. And they didn't have plans to empty these porta potties. So within a day or two, they started overflowing. Uh, these angry kids that we'll get into tipped them over, you know, poop went everywhere. Uh, the other thing that contributed to that was they did have some like free water fountains that quickly got broken and busted and just started spewing water everywhere. Not enough. Uh, yeah, not Even enough. Before they were busted, they weren't enough. It weren't enough. Um, that's why people busted them because they were waiting in line, and you had people that wanted to break things, thanks to Limp Biscuit and everyone else. Um, so then there was water everywhere, and now you've got your poo and your mud, and you can't tell the difference. And some gross but funny scenes of the documentary was people playing in what they thought was mud, and it was not. And then one of the things you'll hear quite a bit when you start researching this was just the prices of things that people were were having to pay these. Uh, security guards, there was very few of them, but the ones that were there were stationed at the check-in because we mentioned how important it was to get people to pay to get in the door. Um, it was also very important to these organizers to get people to pay for food and drinks. They couldn't bring in their own food. They couldn't bring in their own drinks. They were confiscating every kind of liquid and food that people were trying to bring in in exchange for having them on the other side buy $4 bottles of water, which would be 7 $8 a piece in today's money. $5 hot dogs, $10 burritos, must be some some big burritos. Um, but, but kind of the, the theme here is, you know, it's very expensive to get in. One of the more expensive music festivals ever, if not the at the time. Um, and then once people are in, 
everything is very expensive inside. You weren't able to bring your own rations. Uh, and you know, a lot of it at this time, this was kind of when credit card machines were still, uh, you know, cash was still king at the time. And they had a couple ATMs that I think all very quickly ran out of cash and got tipped over and broken. So there was just really this, um, just the environment. So take away what was happening on stage, take away all of that. But the, the rest of the time people were there when they weren't in front of this, this, you know, th these musicians, there was other things that were getting them upset, other things that were causing them hardships and other things that were happening. Uh, shower facilities, same thing as the water fountains. They very quickly broke, were overflowed, uh, not enough. Um, so really just, you know, when we think about what was happening on stage, there was a whole lot of a mess happening off stage as well. You know, Dan, I think that the setting isn't is significant because, yeah, you're right. It it was a it was dry tender waiting to explode. You know, people ha being treated really rough for several days, not sleeping, not getting hydrated, baking in the sun. That's all bad. But I just feel like to me, that's almost a red herring because there because because that that was that was that's something but like you mentioned the security guards and that's when i when they started talking about the security guards just just the security guards i started that's when i started thinking about the whole like man this sounds like game of thrones or like an rpg because the 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 security guys were essentially like mercenaries like they weren't trained really they were just guys that did like a quick uh, like i think it was like a couple hours worth of uh, a cl a class of some sort and then they got a t-shirt and a badge and a lot of them walked into the the festival they took their shirt off and they took their badge tucked it in their pocket and they became festival goers like they just basically just got their own free ticket and this happened that happens a bit by a lot by the way as a as an event organizer myself um we've had that happen quite a bit where we have a volunteer program and people will volunteer and, you know, they show up, you give them a little bit of a training, give them their volunteer shirt, kind of give them their, their roles for the day or for the week. And then after they leave, you know, with their with their name badge that gets them access to everything, you don't see them again. They are just gone. Wow. They're they are part of the part of the path or part of the the masses. So that's, well, that's uh, wacky. Yeah. Well, and, and to, to, to that point, I mean, there's a lot of commonalities. And that's why I thought you as an event creator would would give us some interesting insight like that. Now your your uh, <laughs> your event is slightly different. There's not so much drinking. Uh, there's really not the same level of drug abuse at at podcast movement. I'm just assuming. Um, but that you know, going back to these these unscrupulous security guys, and and maybe they are everywhere. Maybe they are at at, at, at a lot of events. But like these guys, like you said, they were taking people's waters, but then at the door, so people didn't have water to drink in hundred degree multiple day festival uh, conditions. But for uh, for an extra 20, bu 20 buck or, you know, 40 buck or something like that, they were allowing people to bring in their drugs, you know? And, and their alcohol, like, I think even. Like there was some liquor alcohol. getting snuck in. So anything yeah. that's like not gonna help the cause, yeah, slide and, some and, money under the table. And then they have, you know, then they have these, I mean, God, I really am like, I, we have to talk about the really uncomfortable stuff with this because there's a lot of people that were sexually assaulted, you know, and one of the things that they catch one of the security guards on, on camera doing is saying is bragging about how his security credentials, you know, got him 
uh, a hookup and it's just, it's super gross. You know, it's just, it's just absolutely disgusting. And so you like just the security guys by themselves are problematic, you know? Um, but I wish it stopped there. I really wish that was all I could say is like, that was the bad stuff, you know? Um, but, but watching this thing, man, and, and I don't really know how to get into all of this effectively and, and fully, but like, I'll start this way. You know, the, the, the promoters just come off as the biggest a-holes in the world talking about this. And for the most part, these are the same ones that were there in 69 and 94 and now 99. Yeah. And the way that they paint this picture is that this thing, except for a couple of isolated incidents was this amazing event. And then you start to talk to the people that were on the ground that were really there. And it does not sound like that was the case. I mean, people died. People died at this event. Yeah. From And, and the deaths were from uh, the heat and then lack. Yeah. Yeah. And then lack of, uh, honestly, lack of security and staff and, and uh, you know, healthcare on site and, and security measures on site to take care of people when, when issues like this occurred. Um, when, when yeah. they had people, cause what they, I, I think what they said, the one, one of the examples they had was somebody overheated and right. just needed to get to the hospital and get liquids and get IV and get cooled down. And they got out the paddles. They thought he was having some sort of like drug overdose. So yeah. they just figured, okay, oh, this kid just overdosed on drugs, but they weren't trained to actually like properly identify what was happening. And because yeah. of that, they weren't able to bring this, you know, keep this guy alive. So very early on in this documentary, they point out something that I thought was was worth mentioning here was that it's the old saying, the old adage, history is written by the victors, right? And so when you watch a documentary like this, and honestly, now you now thinking of it, you kind of think of it in terms of any documentary, it really whatever their narrative is, is probably kind of going to be what you're led to agree with, right? You know, I watch. I once. Uh, I once listened to this one uh, podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Dan, uh, but it's it's this little podcast called Serial. Like, ah. not many people have heard of it, so don't be embarrassed if you haven't. But but long and short of it, the reason I bring it up is because the the whole concept, the whole premise of Serial was that this dude was wrongfully accused of a murder, and he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. And here's all this evidence as to why he is innocent. And subsequent to that podcast coming out, uh, there was a lot of follow-up where people were like, I don't know, this guy might have actually been really guilty. And far beyond me to say whether or not Adnan Syed was actually guilty. Uh, but Dan, you really should listen to Serial. It's really mm, good. I, I'm, I'm sorry, if, you know. But anyway, no spoilers. No, sorry, I think I already did. But 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 he, um, you know, but, but that, that's the thing, right? Is that if you just listen to Serial, you're like, oh, Adnan's free Adnan, you know, but then you start to hear the follow up. You're like, I don't know. Maybe he's not, maybe he's not innocent. And, and so my point in saying that is that when you, when you watch this documentary, you see these, these promoters telling you how awesome this event was and that they, they have all these scapegoats. MTV's a scapegoat. Limp Bizkit's a scapegoat. Uh, there was only a few bad actors, but other than that, this thing was a brilliant. Now we're both, in our late thirties, we really didn't have much, much firsthand awareness of the original Woodstock. 
But what most people know about Woodstock, the original, was what they learned off the documentary and what they've heard off of the, the albums. And I got to be honest, man, I got to wonder, knowing some anecdotes about that original one, I wonder exactly if it was all peace, love, and rock and roll, or if there weren't people getting sexually assaulted at that thing and, 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 and people getting hurt, you know, I mean, it's really hard to say without really, you know, without doing some, some research. But in terms of this one, I mean, I, like I said, I knew this thing 99 was problematic. I didn't really realize to what extent. Yeah. And kind of the, the look back you're talking about and kind of revisiting maybe, you know, things weren't all peachy clean 30 years prior to this either, uh, that really comes into focus when they have these, I wouldn't call them hidden cameras, but just like this never before seen footage of these organizers and promoters of this event, uh, each day, I guess each morning they would do like a kickoff, uh, conference with all the hired staff and all the security and kind of the different team leaders and stuff. And each day as things were clearly getting progressively worse, they would get up in front of the the staff and, and talk about how great things were going. Oh, we had this little thing, uh, but, you know, uh, paramedics handled it. Or we had this, you know, little report, but police, you know, looked into it. No big deal. And everything was just not a big deal. Everything was going great. Um, and you see that. And then as the days go on, some of these staffers start pushing them. And they're like, wait, like, there's no running water for people to drink. Or, like, all the toilets are full. Or, like, we don't have enough security and they would just tell tell those people like, oh, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you come up here? We'll yeah. trade spots and you try to fix it. And then, you know, and then you just had this almost like a little civil war happening between the staff of some people taking one side and some taking the other. But you just you see how they lead and you see how they their their lack of command of the situation, but their rose colored glasses that they're trying to wear themselves and put on to everyone else. And then in addition to that, then these people were interviewed after the event and uh, for this documentary and they continue to have that thing. Like exactly like you said, Oh, things are really good. Oh yeah. We did have a few incidents, but come on 400,000 people. Most of those people didn't get sexual assaulted, right? Like the majority were, didn't get, you know, didn't, didn't have issues. Uh, and that, and that was their attitude. So then you yeah. start thinking, like you said, Oh, well, if these are the same exact people, uh, that, <laughs> and that's what they're saying about this, where we have video of the opposite of what they're saying happening, uh, maybe if we had video of 94 and 69, like it could have been just as bad or worse. Perhaps. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I found myself becoming very upset about the promoters, you know, um, very often in this, in this documentary, they are telling you not only that most, for the most part, this was a event that went off without a hitch. But that if there was a problem, it wasn't their fault that it was somebody else's. And so, you know, they mention, you know, Limp Biscuit, who like, okay, I think he's kind of a cultural punchline at this point. But in 99, he was probably one of the top five acts on the planet. And he was kind of the, the, the tip of the iceberg when it came to this angry suburban white kid stuff, you know, and... That's fine. Like I was one of them. I was singing break stuff. You know, I get it. But like the song is called break stuff. And like you're a promoter and you're upset because this guy is singing a song about breaking stuff. And like they act like, oh, well, he could have helped us out. He could have done us a favor. No, he couldn't. He did exactly the, the, the monkey did exactly what you paid the, the monkey to do. He just sang the song about breaking stuff. 
And the kids that had been galvanized behind this message the, that were angry about whatever the hell they had to be angry about all started breaking stuff. And so to hear him talk about that, that, um, you know, that, that, oh, it was Limp Bizkit's fault. He could have done us a favor or that the chili peppers needed to do us a favor. No, they didn't. They were the trained monkey doing what you wanted them to do. And you sold these tickets to this demo and you got what you asked for. And, you know, the other, the other thing that I wanted to talk about back to these angry effing kids and all the atrocities they, they pulled off on this thing. I mean, it was, it was a riot and it was, you know, they, they tore that place up, but there was a lot of people that, that got sexually assaulted and the gall of the promoter that got on there and said, well, you know, a lot of these girls were, were nude or they were topless. I mean, he, he pulled the, they were asking for it card. And, and, and I mean, he said it on tape. Like they literally said, these girls were asking for it. You don't say that, you know? And, and it was, I mean, that's absolutely ludicrous to, to imply. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, you have just heinous things, heinous way of thinking. Um, <sighs> He almost, he blew it off the same way that they kind of blew off um, when we were talking about the call and repeat or call and response, like with the DMX and the N-word, um, you know, like, oh, that's, you know, you could ask the artist about it, right? It was, it was on them. But then for the sexual assaults, we'll ask Limp Biscuit why they were singing and why they didn't tell people to stop doing sexual assault in the crowd while like just completely passing the buck. Um, but then, like you said, then I, I guess the, the appropriate term is victim blaming, like yeah. blaming the the women who, you know, whether they flashed or did whatever, um, we all know like that's there's no that's not permission. Right. That's not consent. Right. right. Um, and for this, you know, the, the promoter even could have said, yeah, like we created an environment between the artists we picked and the demo that we knew those artists would bring. And I'm sure there was artists. I didn't see clips of it, but I'm sure there was artists like asking these women to do what they did in terms of like flashing the the crowd. Um, like that kind of thing happened back then is like the artists would promote that kind of thing. And I'm sure that happened, but for them to not just say like, yeah, this is the environment we created the artists, the demo, all of this that we brought together for them to just like throw their hands up and, and be like, there was no, there was no accountability. Yeah. And that was the most frustrating part out of all the other stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We were trying to make money off the bottles of water. Okay. Like capitalism, it sucks. It was bad. It created a bad environment. Yeah. Um, all those things were bad, but this one, it actually is, you know, starts being victim blaming was the part that like really made you kind of sick and like oh. super upset. Well, just the idea he said, oh, well there was only like eight reported incidents. Like, Meanwhile, there's like eight women that were interviewed for this documentary and none of them even like had reported it. They all like, well, exactly. it took them years to realize that's what my, happened. That's my point, Dan, is that most sexual assaults go unreported. That's just a, like, how does somebody not know that at this point? You know, it just, that really frustrated me. And and so, yeah, the Limp Biscuit and all the other musicians, he, he called, you know, he said it was their fault. The other, the other uh, party he blamed was MTV. He, and you... You mentioned those early morning meetings that they they had video of. They would MTV would basically say, "Hey, this is not a safe situation. What are you doing to to resolve this?" And like he said, he was just they were just completely um, tone deaf, and, and and they were not listening to this. And so he he made it out. He basically made 
this was lamestream media before <laughs> lamestream media was coined, right? Was, yeah. uh, oh, MTV, of all people, MTV, oh, Kurt Loder, you can't believe what that guy's saying. I don't know, man. It seems like MTV, of all the times that I've really not been on their side, it seems like they were trying to do the solid thing here and say, oh, we should probably, you know, be concerned with safety just as scotch, you know? Well, and they they spent, surely, large sums of money to be this exclusive, uh, you know, broadcaster of this festival, to have their team there, to be going, you know, kind of around-the-clock broadcasting from this. Like, why would they be, why would MTV be making it out to be a bad thing unless it was? Like, it's in their interest to be like, yeah, this was kick-ass. Like, we right. really want them to do it again, and we want the ratings that we're going to get from this. So, like, the fact that they were like, okay, no, actually, we are telling our people to leave the situation. Carson Daly, you know, punchline, whatever. But he was there covering it, and he's like, yeah, they, like, pulled me out and told us, like, you know, basically evacuated us from the situation because of everything that was going wrong. Like very little was going right. Uh, and because of all this, you know, not just the fire, not just the sexual assaults, not just the dehydrations and deaths and all that, but all of those things combined, like we're getting pulled out of there. Um, that was just not like a fabricated thing MTV was doing. Like that was just telling what was happening. And, and, and I don't think necessarily that MTV's hands are clean in this either, because a lot of this is there. I mean, they profited off of it, right? Like they well, they made large sums of money. Yes, but a lot of this was their own doing. You know, the 90s were a weird time, kids. And, and on one side of uh, of MTV, you had, you know, 18-year-old Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And you had these these kids that had just been on the Disney Channel not five minutes ago. Now they were 18-year-old sex symbols. And uh, on the other side of that, you had the... You had Eminem, you had Limp Biscuit, you had Kid Rock, you had these angry, angsty teens. And so MTV kind of pitted them up against each other. And, and so what showed up and what Woodstock 99 was, was a bunch of angry, high testosterone white kids who were all mad at everybody for some reason. And, and it's not quite clear. But they, they decided that being, you know, they used the anonymity of being one of 400,000 people to do a lot of ugly stuff. Uh, and there was one kid at the end of the documentary. Was, I, I don't know if you remember this, but this kid was like, yeah, I showed up to see Metallica. And then three days later, I'm burning a pretzel stand down. Like he just was like, yeah, mob mentality, man. You know, shoulder shrug. What are you going to do? And, and it was wild because it did. They, you know, it became Lord of the Flies. And you just had these kids turn into absolute monsters. And so I, I don't know. I mean, do, is there, do you feel like you've covered off on everything that you wanted to say about this? Cause I have some thoughts of my own just to wrap things up here. Yeah. I mean, I, what I tried to do when I watched that, because like I, like we both mentioned, we were more or less in the demographic that this was geared towards. So we could have seen ourselves there sure. because it was geared towards us. Yeah. The music, the, the age, I could have been an idiot there too. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not above. So that's what I'm like yeah. trying to put my, and you know, trying to go back however many years that was 20, 25 years ago, trying to put ourselves in that situation. That's what I kept trying to do because I was like, as much as I was like, man, like these, these kids are monsters, like, you know, these things they're doing, but I was like, but really like, as I look in there, I see people like me at the time. Yeah. And that was the hardest part of it was like, okay, 
I'd like to think none of those things would I have participated in. I would have been the vast majority. Yes, the vast majority didn't do a lot of those bad things. Right. They were, you know, chilling with Dave Matthews Band or Jamiroquai or, you know, listening to The Roots or or Willie Nelson, right? Like maybe smoking a doobie with Willie, but otherwise like not really causing this thing. And you'd like to think you were on that side. Um, but again, you see these kids like, you know, in their Jinkos stomping on, <laughs> stomping on stuff and lighting water bottles on fire. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess that could have been me. Yeah, that's a good, that's, man, it's a scary thought, but you're right. Um, I want to say this to, to wrap things up because maybe I didn't feel this way in 99, but I've definitely felt this way uh, for a long time. Uh, and I definitely, this heightened this emotion that I have, Dan. I hate big events. I can't stand them. I really can't. And this documentary, although this is the most heinous example of it, this really made me kind of feel validated because again, I thought I knew this was a problematic episode going into it. I didn't realize how bad it was, but man, just the idea of the amount of humanity, the amount of dignity that one has to sacrifice to go to one of these monster events. I mean, you're paying to be treated like an animal worse than, you know, whether it's $4 water bottles, whether it's non-functioning Porta Johns, you know, even if they are functioning, you're going to sit in a line, you know, for a long line just to do something that if I'm at my house, I can do very easily right now uh, without any line whatsoever. Um, for free. For free, you know, I, I think the, and, and I've, I mean, I just, this is my old man rant. Sorry, hit the theme. But like, I think the worst part of anything is the fandom. I mean, anything, anytime I've got to listen to a lot of the masses tell me how good something is. I remember how stupid the masses are and I'm like, oh, there's got to be a reason why this is bad, you know? And that's all I could think this whole time is like, oh my God, thank God I didn't have the means to be a part of this. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that and this might be like downplaying the severity of some of the bad things that happened there, but I often remember this and feel that same way when I'm going to, let's say I like a Dallas Cowboys game. Yes. Um, that's one of the first things I thought of. Because you have to show up a couple hours early just because of the parking and you walk through and then you're walking through what kind of is like a Lord of the Flies situation with like tailgaters and like like random things happening and, and fights breaking out between people that have had too much to drink or opposing fans. Yeah. And then you get in there and then, you know, you, you get even if you have the most expensive seats, you're still like waiting in a long line to you're then buy it. an overpriced, you know, pretzel. Um, and then after it's over. You are, are herded through the, the, the parking lot line and it takes you three hours to get out of the parking lot. So I always, you know, if you're going to an event like that, you're usually excited on the front end. And then at some point the regret sets in and you like are questioning why you do it. And then on the, you know, on the back end, you're always saying you're never going to do it again. Um, so that's what it reminds me of is, yep. you know, just your kind of big picture, large event uh you know, conversation. Big, big rule of mine, Dan, is it there is very rarely anything that involves being in a line that is worth it. If you got to put Jack in a very long line, I can guarantee you that whatever is at the end of that line is probably not worth the line to begin with. And like this, I mean, this is all, man, it's, this is all, maybe this is all just self-realization, but you know, you know, one of my favorite genres of music is, is jazz. Do you know why jazz is really one of my favorite musics, Dan? 
You never have to wait in line to hear it? It's because nobody listens to jazz, Dan. (laughs) It's because I can go to a jazz lounge in New York City, and there's people there. There ain't many, and they're not fighting in the parking lot, and it's peaceful, and I enjoy myself. You know why I'm a fan of the Cleburne Railroaders, Dan? Because I'll go, and instead of there being 18,000 people, there's 1,800 people. And if if I'm in line, it's for three minutes. You know, like, this is... I don't know. I mean, this is for me, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm giving some listener some best practices that gives less stress in their life. But you just look at where the masses are. You can go somewhere else. You can totally go somewhere else and it, it'll probably be awesome. Well, I mean, I think the takeaway is uh, if you're looking for smaller crowds, but good fun, uh, we've got something for you coming up and that's the next time you'll hear from us. Yeah, the man, I can't wait. Okay, Dan. So, what's your uh, what's your rating of Woodstock '99, the documentary? How many? Oh, the documentary. I I don't know. Seven and a half, eight, somewhere in there. I thought it was good. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I wouldn't give it an Oscar-winning documentary. But in terms of just going into it, my interest in the topic, and then coming out of it feeling like I, you know, learned something, which you kind of want to do from a documentary. Um, definitely rank it high. What about you? Uh, very uncomfortable. Very tummy hurt, but yes, uh, excellent documentary. Very Worth the watch. Very interesting. Bill oh. Simmons, you are the uh, director of the episode. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Stand aside, everybody else that was nominated. All right, Dan, I think that's it. I think that's it for us, right? That's it for us. Here we are once again at the end of another installment of Men Seeking Tomahawks. Be sure to subscribe to the program on your favorite podcast app. Become a tomahawk-seeking person by visiting us over on the social media. And to hear more from the musicians featured on the program, go to menseekingtomahawks.com. For Dan, I'm Jack. Jack, I'm Dan. See you in Cleburne.